That's all right. Praise God. Absolutely, yeah. Champing at the bit. Well, good morning. Good to see all of you this morning. Glad you're here. The Lord is glad you're here. If you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. We continue our series through the book of 1 John that we are entitling Blessed Assurance. John is writing an epistle that is intended to encourage believers to assure them that they have the blessing of eternal life. As we come to 3 verses 11 and following this morning, this is a turning point in the book. From 1 5 all the way to 3 verse 10, the controlling thought has been God is light. I was introduced way back in 1 verse 5. God is light. And John has been exploring what that looks like for a Christian, for God to be light. And yet we, we know our own darkness, our own sin. <clears throat> but what has God done in Christ? And then in light of what God has accomplished in Christ Jesus, how then should we live in the light of God? John, in 3.10, the very last phrase, has introduced the transition. The one who does not love his brother is not of God. And so now, from 3.11 all the way through to chapter 5, the controlling thought is going to be, God is love. You need both of those very significant theological points. God is light. God is love. And so, just from a 30,000-foot view, that's the book of 1 John. God is light, and God is love. And so in light of the fact that God is love, how then should we live? Well, again, John is going to focus on how we are to live a life of love as we follow the God who has loved us with an incredible love. So with that preface, let's read 1 John 3, verses 11 through 18. Hear now the word of the true and living God. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and we know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let us pray. Father God, through your word this morning, instruct us, teach us how we are to love one another. 
And what that requires, Father, is a clear vision of the cross of Christ. Help us to see our Lord as we look into your word. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Talk is cheap, and actions speak louder than words. That's what this section essentially boils down to, what John is driving toward as he begins and commences this uh, argument and this discussion about God is love and how that theological truth, the fact that God is love, how that influences us and impacts our lives in the here and now. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning. It was a command we saw earlier in John's work, the command from the beginning uh, that we have had with us uh, from the beginning here, probably pointing to the beginning of their Christian career. could also point all the way back to the beginning of the gospel when Jesus came and he began to teach. He began to teach the need to love one another. And we could certainly make the connection to the upper room discourse in John chapter 13. No doubt that from that scene from John's gospel looming large in the mind of John as he writes this epistle and uh, is essentially providing commentary on what he has written in the gospel. But Jesus told us that as he loved us, we ought to love one another and that it will be by our love for one another that the world will know that we are disciples, his disciples. And so from the beginning... This is the message, it is this, that we should love one another. Love, you know, when we talk about love in the first place, we need to recognize that we have a single word for love. And so, you know, I love my wife, and I love Tin Roof Sunday ice cream, right? But we recognize that those are different loves. Even in a familial context, I love my wife, but I love her different than how I love my children. I love my wife, but I also love all my Christian brothers and sisters. And yet, at the same time, she's also a sister in Christ. Praise God. And so we recognize that there are these various levels of love and, and different ways in which we express love. In the original language, they had a few different words for love. They had uh, eros, which was sexual love. They had storge, which was familial love. They had phileo, which was uh, friendship-type love. And then they had agape, and that was the highest uh, form of love, a, a selfless love. And that's the term that John uses here, that agape love. And when we talk about love also, one other thing that kind of trips us up is we, we tend to focus on the subjective aspects of love, the, the feelings. We ought to have ooey-gooey, rich, chewy, warm, fuzzy feelings all the time. Anyone who's been married for any amount of time knows that at some point, loving your spouse as you ought to takes some work. Well, I guess that was a good place to say amen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Certainly, the subjective aspects, the feelings of love, ought to go along with our love that we experience for one another. The Scripture captures that aspect of it as well. Here, love takes on a very objective quality to it. And when it comes to, especially this is going to be rooted in God is love, the love that God has for us is objective in nature. 
God sent His Son into the world because He loved the world. And the object of His love, the purpose of His love, the objective was to see Christ formed in us, in His people. That's the the nature, that's the purpose, the objective of God's love is to see Christ formed in us. With that, I believe we can then look into the love that we ought to have for one another. If love, and even the agape that John is talking about here, if that love means that I am to seek the person's highest and greatest good, what would be the highest and greatest good of any single person? It would be to see Christ formed in them. That begins to impact all of the various loves that we have. I love my wife. That means that I want to see Christ formed in her. I love my children. That means I want to see Christ formed in them. I love my brothers and sisters in Christ. That means I want to see Christ formed in you. I love my neighbor as I love myself. That means I want to see Christ formed in them. You see how this goes. Love your enemy. I want to see Christ formed even in my enemy. Ooh, high and lofty there. You see how this works. This is the objective nature of love. And so, with that, uh, providing the framework for love, I, I believe we begin to see how John is working to help us to realize that goal as, as a reality. But first, he dives back into the Old Testament, verse 12. This if I'm reading John correctly, this is the only direct Old Testament reference that he makes in all of his book. Now, granted, there are allusions. We've seen them. I've, I've tried to, as best I can, show you the connections that are being made to certain Old Testament concepts. But this is the only one, and it's, it's fascinating because he goes all the way back to the beginning. We should not be like Cain, Cain, Cain. Oh, yeah, Adam and Eve, they had a couple of sons, Cain and Abel. And, oh, oh, I remember that story, Genesis 4, yes. How Cain and Abel, they, when they were grown up, they brought sacrifices to God. And Cain brought of the ground, of the fruit of the ground. And Abel brought the firstborn of his flocks. And I know a lot of ink has been spilt about, you know, the... the the sacrifice, the, 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 very, the, the, the variety, the differences in the sacrifices themselves, one was just, you know, of the ground, and uh, Abel's was actually a blood sacrifice. And Actually, when you look back into the law, they not only had the blood sacrifices of animals, they also had grain offerings and stuff like that. I don't think it's that that is the difference. The difference is in that word firstborn, that Abel brought the firstborn. Cain did not bring the first fruits. He just brought of. He just brought what he wanted. I believe that's the key distinction. I think we can, <clears throat> you can disagree with me about that and we'll still all go to heaven, but that's my take on what's going on there. And so as a result, Cain is downcast. He's angry with his brother Abel. And he schemes a scheme, talks his brother into going out into the field, and it's in the field that Cain rose up and slew or slaughtered his brother. It's very violent, very graphic. And indeed, that's the language that John uses here. Cain, he was of the evil one. Notice, it isn't that he murdered his brother and then became of the evil one. He was already of. There was a, a certain character, character, a certain nature that was already a part of him prior to his actions. 
that he was of the evil one, the evil one being the devil. And there's already been an extended discussion here in uh, chapter 3 about that that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. He was of the evil one, and he murdered. Uh, he slaughtered. He butchered his brother. That's, that's the force of the term that John uses here. Savagery is involved. That Cain became animalistic in rising up and murdering his brother. Very vicious, very violent. By the way, that's instructive to John's overall argument here that he's going to make in just a few moments. But why did he murder him? Verse 12 goes on. It's because his own deeds were evil. Again, notice, this is not a problem where, where Cain just didn't know that he didn't have enough information to, to make a good decision. It's not a problem of information. It's a moral problem. And that's the, by the way, that's, that's the issue with every single sinner. It's a moral problem, not a problem of information, that we know better, and yet we still choose sin. And that's what Cain does here. Because his, his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteousness. So you do have the comparative aspect here. There's resentment in play. There's jealousy in play. Certainly all those, all those uh, what, secondary emotions, anger and all that goes along with this. But it was all that under the surface that fed Cain's murderous rage. This is why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, that if you are angry with your brother, it's as if you've, you've already committed murder in your heart. That's how serious this stuff is. You've heard it said, do not murder, but I say if you're angry with your brother, you've already violated the law. Why it's so crucial that we deal with our anger in good, godly ways. And we do. We're human. We get angry. Anger in and of itself, not a bad thing. It's a red flag, tells us something's wrong. You've got to handle it in an appropriate way. If you don't, it becomes sin, and that's the issue. The Bible say, does not say, don't get angry. It says, be angry, but do not sin. Cain kills his brother, Abel. And then we notice here the connection John makes. Brothers, verse 13, do not be surprised that the world hates you. As Cain hated and killed his brother, Abel, so the world hates Christians. And of course, that has led to persecution, not only in their context, but the world over throughout church history. This is akin to what Jesus says in John chapter 15 and verse 18. He says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. That the hatred that the world has toward Christians is ultimately rooted in their hatred of Christ. That I know we, we bend over backwards to try to make the gospel as appealing as possible, but ultimately for the unbeliever, their hatred is directed toward God and toward Christ and disconnected from uh, God and disconnected from Christ and the work of the Spirit in their life. That attitude will remain. Now, it will have various degrees in which it's expressed, but that's where it is. And that's where the world is. And the world hates Christ. And therefore, of course, the world's going to hate Christians. That's, to who, that's who John is writing to here are Christians. Uh, he addresses them as brothers, siblings in Christ. So he says, don't be surprised. Um, the world hates you. And if, if hatred is the antithesis of love, of course the world doesn't want you to look like Jesus. You actually thought the world was going to help you become like Christ? No. They're going to do everything they can 
to prevent you from looking like Christ because they hate Christ. And they hate every vestige of Christ and every, every thing that reminds them that they are in rebellion against the king. And that would, of course, be his subjects who have bowed the knee to King Jesus. Now John circles back and he, again, addresses his brothers here. And uh, verse 14, he picks up, he says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. And so John here is, is demonstrating that where the gospel has taken root, love will be the natural fruit. There's the preacher way of saying it, right? Where the gospel has taken root, love will be the natural fruit. And so that, that's how we know that we've passed from from death into life. It's, it's evident. Here's the evidence of the work of God in our lives. We love the church. We love our brothers and sisters. That's why historically this uh, movement, it was prominent decades ago. It's manifested a little differently in, in recent years. But this idea that you can love Jesus and yet slight the church just simply is a non-starter to begin with. You cannot slight the bride of Christ and expect to have a good relationship with the bridegroom. No, we, we pass from death to life, and that is eternal life, because, here's, here's the reason that we, we know this, is because we love the brothers. We love the brothers and sisters. We love the church, our siblings, or the family of God. And those familial tones have been all throughout chapter 3, as we've gone along. Whoever does not love abides in death. There it is. No love, no life. That's just, that's what John says. And so, no, we, we cannot uh, abide in death. We must be people who love our brothers, love our sisters. Verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. There's your connection to the Cain story. And it's important that we emphasize here that there's only, there's only two options here. There's not love and then hatred and then like some third thing, you know, blurred. You blurred your brothers and sisters, right? Whatever that is. There's only love and hatred. And so if you do not love your brothers or your sisters, that must mean that you, hmm, that's pretty serious, pretty sobering. And so the, the one, hating, and hating here is an ongoing thing. It's a present tense thing, a present reality. This is akin to walking in darkness. It's akin to practicing lawlessness or unrighteousness or sin. All these things that John has been walking through carefully, explaining as he's gone along, it's connected to this as well. The one hating, the present reality, the present lifestyle of hating his brother or his sister. John says that. You're, you're a throat-cutting brother butcherer. That's, that's the connection. You're, you're, you're of Cain, which means you're of the evil one. That, that hatred cannot exist in your heart, Christian. It is vital, it is essential that you, uh, well, you handle your business, right? That, that you take care of the family matters that arise between one another. And he goes on, he says, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abide, uh, abiding in him. I am emphasize those only two categories because related to hatred, 
you may think, well, you know, I, I don't hate him, you know. I don't know. But if you have a passive, uncaring attitude towards your brother, your sister, a, a take him or leave him kind of attitude, that's not love. So then it must be something else. Yeah? Love, this is why the sermon is entitled, Love is a Verb. Love is active. Love, love is proactive even. It takes the initiative. Why it's related to the, the golden rule, uh, do unto others as you would have them do to you. We know the negative aspect of that. Well, you don't do stuff to the people that you don't want done to you. But the positive, and that's how Jesus phrased it, the positive expression of that, of being proactive in doing to others what you want done to you, Ah, oh, now that is novel, that is new, and that is, again, an aspect of the love that we are to have for one another. Yeah, eternal life does not abide in the murderer, and the context here is, again, loving your brothers or your sisters, and the connection that John makes there to Cain and Abel as an illustration of what he's talking about. Now, John three sixteen, we know. God so loved the world and gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. We know John 3.16. What about 1 John 3.16? Here we go. Here it is. It's related to it, isn't it? You know, it was a fellow by the name of Stephanus who was responsible in the 16th century for putting in the chapter and verse breaks that we have. And, you know, I've mentioned before that sometimes the break isn't always the best. But this one, man, providential, if you will, in the connection here between John 3.16 and 1 John 3.16. By this we know love, that he, the he here would be, of course, Christ, because he's the one who laid down his life for us on our behalf, in our place. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. You want to know what a life looks like that is living in light of eternal life and has eternal life? Well, it's right here in laying down your life for the brothers. So the verse begins, verse 16, by this. Is he pointing backward or is he pointing forward? And, and either in the original languages is a viable option. But the way this verse is structured, I believe it's pointing forward. By this, by what I'm about to write, we know love. Here's the reason. That he, Christ, laid down his life for us. Here is, again, you want to know love? You want to see love in action? You've got to take a good long look at the cross. And you see the love that God has for us demonstrated, revealed in the Son laying down his life. And that the phrasing here and the way John writes this is, is vital. It's crucial. Laid down, this is the same term. Remember in, again, I've mentioned the upper room discourse in John. It's chapters 13, 14, 15, 16. Remember at the beginning where Jesus, he, he, he de determined his hour had come and it was time for him to show his love to the uttermost. And he takes off his outer garment and he laid it aside. It's the same, it's the same word that's used there, right here. Jesus laying down his life. Now, we talked about this on Wednesday night during our Bible class. I invite you for in-person Bible study uh, every Wednesday at 7 o'clock here in the fellowship hall. If you miss it, if you missed the live show, you can catch it on Friday evenings when we premiere it at 7 o'clock on the YouTube channel. One of the things we talked about in class this last Wednesday 
was in John 10 and verse 18. You actually need verse 17 as well. John 10, 17, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Ah, here's Jesus again. Jesus himself talking about laying down his life. Verse 18, no one takes it from me. So this idea that Jesus was this hapless, helpless victim in all this, just a, a victim of a system of oppression or injustice or whatever, is simply unbiblical. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. You hear what he's saying here? And this is, here's a link in a chain from last week. Remember last week, uh, one of the things Buddy talked about was uh, about those who introduce disharmony into the Trinity where they envision the cross as the father killing his son. What a barbaric, unbecoming idea of God. Very pagan and all that. Well, actually what Jesus is saying here is, no, I, I willingly, I voluntarily lay down my life. I, he goes on, he says, I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. That's resurrection language there that he's in, in view. This charge I received from my father. So Jesus, he left heaven voluntarily. He goes to the cross willingly. And this idea which tries to introduce uh, disharmony or disunion among the Trinity, the Father killing His Son, oh, and all. No. The, yes, the Father sends the Son. The Son comes willingly. He came voluntarily to, to lay down His life for us, for you and for me, for, for His people, for His sheep. He takes our place on the cross. The sin that was ours, was laid on him. The penalty for that sin, do us, he took. And he exhausts the full wrath of the Father on the cross. And so as a result of that, of the, the triune work of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, as the Son offers himself to the Father through the Spirit on the cross, John grabs hold of that, presents it clearly for Christians to see. He laid down his life for us, and then he says, well, we ought, here's obligation, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, for our siblings, for one another, our brothers and sisters. Remember how this started, love one another. And here it is, love, it carries uh, the atoning work of Christ certainly has obligations, places obligations upon us. But we see here the supreme proof of love for our brothers and sisters is a willingness to lay down our lives for one another. That part of what it means to have agape in us and to love one another is a self-sacrificial type of love. We lay down our lives for our brothers, for our sisters. And so there's the argument. It's rooted in the cross, rooted in Calvary. And now John, verses 17 and 18, here's the application. But if anyone has the world's goods... And anyone here would be anyone in the, in the household of faith, because that's who John is writing to. Anyone, any Christian who has the world's goods, and that has to do with, well, your stuff, right? Possessions and property and food and clothing and all these different things. You have the world's goods. You see your brother. Notice, this isn't just any Joe bag of donuts, granted, 
right? We, we want to do good to all people, right? But this is the person that you go to worship with every Sunday. You assemble with him, with her, your brother, your sister, every, and you see your brother in need. You've seen their plight. You understand their need and their, their lack of need and, and why they're in that situation. But you see that, and yet you close your heart against him. And the idea here, the, the heart, that's, uh, and, and really, um, uh, it's, uh, it's the inward parts. That's where the, the emotions were, right? And, and we have it similar to us today. We have it in the heart as well as the seat of the emotions. And, and so uh, your, the idea here is your heart, you see their need, your heart is tugged for a moment, and then like a trap, it shuts closed. It could have brought a mouse trap up here or something and you know, triggered it or whatever and just snap. That's the idea. Closes his heart. Closes his heart against his brother, against his sister. Uh, that's the idea. Your, your heart was open, but then it just snapped shut. No, no, no. No, no, no. How does God's love abide in him? It's a rhetorical question. It doesn't. Does God's love does God's love abide in him? That's a rhetorical question. Well, if it's not love, then it must be something else. Even passive neglect. John is making the connection here for us. Even passive neglect is a form of hatred. Little children, let us not love in word or talk. This is what we've been talking about. You may talk a good game. You may talk the talk, but how's your walk? Are you walking the walk? Uh, this is, this is uh, a connection you can make in your Bible to James chapter 2. John and James agree on this point. And, of course, we know that in back of every human writer was the divine writer, the Holy Spirit. No wonder they agree. John, James, in James chapter 2, <clears throat> uh, verses 14 through 16, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Now, now uh, James here is not at odds with Paul, as though you're saving yourself by your works. Rather, these are the works that justified these are the good works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them since we are his masterpiece and have been saved by his grace. You claim to have faith, but you don't have works. You don't have the evidence of the work of God in your life. You may be professing to be a Christian, but you're not manifesting it by the way that you're living. Can that faith save him? Now it's verses 15 and 16. Here's the connection. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? You hear it? Don't just love in word and talk. Don't just say, be warmed and filled, right? Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. That's why we started where we started. Talk is cheap. Even in the body of Christ, actions speak louder than words. So how's your, how's your walk? That's what this all keeps coming back to. Are you walking in love, the light of the love of God? Brother, sister, that's, that's what we are called to. Love is a verb. And so, yes, we, as John here writing to these Christians, uh, uh, 
an affectionate term, little children, but think about also we are the little children of God. Every one of us, brothers and sisters, Christians, members one of another. And so, yeah, let us love in deed and in truth. Notice the connection here between love and truth. Love does not rejoice in falsehood. It rejoices in the truth. And so, uh, here is the application that John has in mind. Very, very much meets the rugged reality, uh, the rugged realm of reality. It, it, it reaches down to right where we live, crawls up in our lap, eats our lunch and all that. And so, yeah, we, the message is we take care of our own. So long as I have food in my pantry, no one's going hungry, right? And, and we, do, we do our best to absolutely meet needs in the surrounding community. But first and foremost, our priority is with our brothers and our sisters in the church. So love, yes, love is a verb. Let's commit this to prayer. We are staggered, Father, by the love that you have for us. Clearly seen in Christ on the cross. Clearly demonstrated as you have granted us new spiritual life in Christ Jesus by your Spirit. Realizing this and and acknowledging it, Father, we pray that we would be people who love one another. That where animosity and tension exists, that we be people who seek to put that to rest so that we might be perfectly united even as you, Father, are one with the Son and with the Spirit. And may we be people who seek to meet the needs that uh, one another has that as we recognize needs, as needs present themselves in the body, that indeed we would be people who aim to meet that need. And indeed, Father, we, we have been doing that. Help us to do it all the more. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. My friend, the, the gospel has been told to you this morning about the love that the Father has. That's how we know love. It's not that we loved God, it's that He loved us. His love comes first. And He has shown us pure, true love in the cross of Christ. How have you responded to the good news, to the gospel of what God has accomplished in Christ Jesus on your behalf? Again, the the penalty and the punishment due us for our sins, Christ took on the cross. In a moment, when Gene leads us, that's your opportunity, my friend, to come forward and express how you desire to be united to Christ. To be united in His death, burial, and resurrection, and that happens in baptism. You, turning away from sin, confessing Jesus Christ as Lord and your only Savior. You go down into the waters. You are united with Christ. All your sins are washed away by the blood of Christ. And you are raised to live new life filled with the Holy Spirit. That can be yours even today 
just when we sing this song, make your way down and we can help you with that. Many of us, most of us, we've done that, brothers and sisters. But again, the, the question that comes ringing down to us today is, how are you living? How are you walking these days? Are you walking in the light? Are you walking in love? And maybe it's directly related to what we've talked about this morning. You, you look at your love life. How's your love life? Your, how, how are you loving your brothers and your sisters? And <clears throat> maybe you recognize there are some ways that you've fallen short. You need the help that comes from God to be reconciled to a brother or a sister, to, uh, to do better at uh, being a, a Christian who is sacrificially giving of yourself and of your goods. Maybe it's uh, not related to what we've talked about. It's just something that's been lingering on your heart and on your mind, and you want to seek the, the help that comes from God as we pray with you. Again, in a moment, when Gene leads us in the song, make your way down to the front, and we'll surround you with love, and we'll lift you up in prayer to our Father in heaven. <clears throat> Maybe it's something of a personal nature. You want a private setting. One of our shepherds will be available in the conference room. Make your way to the conference room. They'll meet you there, and they'll do the same thing there that we do here. Surround you with love and lift you up in prayer to our Father in heaven. Maybe it's something unrelated to what we've been talking about, something spiritual, emotional, mental, physical, what have you. That's what the invitation is for as well. Just make your way down here, and we'll pray with you about that as well. The lesson is yours. The invitation is open. Won't you come right now while we stand and as we sing?